Well, if you have your Bibles open, uh, you can turn them to Second Samuel. Uh, we're going to be continuing our look into David's life. It's been a few weeks uh, since we last um, had a chance to look at David and uh, what is written in the text. And so, um, you know, we're going to be kind of building a bridge from where we last were to where we are today because it's important that we make those connections. Uh, in these narrative passages, the, the writers of the narratives are always uh, cluing us into uh, perspectives and, and details that carry the narrative of a story. You know, like these things about David's life isn't everything. We don't know every detail of what happened, but the things that we're clued in on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are there for a reason. And they help us understand the context um, for what's going on um, in this, this, the heart of this man who is a heart that loves God, but is also a heart that is full of passion and often gets carried away in excess. David is a unique figure uh, to study. Um, you know, I, I think if we remember the Sunday school stories when we're a kid, we look at him as a great hero. And in many ways, he is, a, is, he is heroic. And in many ways, he is also full of failure. And it's been interesting as I have taken time to, to read and to study, just God doesn't hold back in, in what he reveals to us about the trouble that was in David's life and the trouble that was visited upon his family because of um, David's lack of leadership. And so we're going to unpack some of that this morning. Uh, there's two things I want you to, to notice up front. Number one, I gave you a bulletin insert. And so that's there just as a help. Um, my initial desire was to preach verses 13 through 18. That was my initial desire, like early in the week when I felt like I had a lot of ambition. And then uh, by the time I got to the end of chapter 14 in my study, I thought, yeah, that's not happening. Um, so what I did was I compiled a list of all of the main people that are listed in chapters 13 through 18 so that you have it as a reference. And, and I did that because we're going to be summarizing points. I'm not going to be reading every verse in all of these chapters. And if I make mention of someone, I want you to be able to quickly go back and say, oh yeah, that's that guy. Um, because there's a lot of um, interconnection with all of these people. And there, there is a bit of a backstory to some of them that we need to keep in its proper context. So don't be distracted by the insert. You know, it's there for your value, but like you don't have to memorize it. So if you find yourself looking at the insert more than you are hearing what I'm saying, just put it away. It'll be all right. Um, the second thing is we're not going to get through chapter 18. We're going to look at chapters 13 and 14. It's going to set the scene for next week in chapters 15 through 18 as we continue this look in this strange season of David's life. Uh, but the big thing that we want to see in these chapters specifically is that this season in David's life becomes a warning for us. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a danger passage. It's cautionary. Uh, whatever you need to say it, let this passage of Scripture grab your attention and, and let God speak to you 
and encourage you where you are in faithfulness to keep walking in faithfulness and and let God warn you that if there are things that are shaky in your life to be careful to not continue to go forward because of the disastrous results that could occur. Uh, my desire is that none of us would follow the tragic footsteps of David. Now, David certainly was a man after God's own heart. And, and in that way, let's follow his example. But in a very practical way, this man that had a heart for God was also a man that had great passions for a lot of things. And sometimes his passions were for himself. And that's where he found himself in trouble a few weeks ago, right? I mean, David had many wives and concubines, and still he wanted to sleep with a woman that was not his wife and brought that woman to his house, slept with her, they conceived. And in that plan to try to control the circumstances rather than deal with it, quickly and correctly in the sight of a holy God. Uh, David had her husband, Uriah, murdered. And so we see at the end of chapter 12, David is confronted and rebuked by Nathan. And there were some consequences for his actions. See, David's life was very difficult after his sin with Bathsheba. The rest of his years, and he was around 50 years old when, when the events with Bathsheba occurred. The rest of his days will be full of struggle and turmoil. There will not be a lot of peace. This is not young David slaying a giant and the nation singing his praises. And you get this sense that there's this great excitement about this man. This is a man who loves God. But he is wearing the weight of those consequences. Some of the consequences are found in chapter 12, verse 10, when we read, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. This is God speaking through the prophet to David. And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And then in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. And so we're not sure how much time is unfolding from one event to the next, but the narrator of 2 Samuel looking into David's life picks up on these warnings of these consequences to David in chapter 12. And it's the next events that he clues us in on as saying, here it is, David. You know, uh, what a man sows, he will reap. And when God and his holiness brings discipline, it's going to happen. He's going to correct and there are consequences for our choices. And we're going to talk about some of that in a few minutes because, boy, we love that our God is gracious and good and kind and merciful. And, and we should hold on to that. I mean, that's what causes me to be able to stand in this presence. But we also need to understand that God is holy and just and righteous in all of his ways. And he, he does not want his children messing around with sin. 
And when we sin and fall short, we can receive forgiveness. But then there are often consequences that goes along with it. And this is what David is experiencing. So we're not immune to consequences as a Christian. You know, we can't just do whatever we want, however we want. Go to God for forgiveness. He makes it right between us and him. And then we get a get out of jail free card. And David is going to be dealing with some of that. And, and, and some of these things, the, right, the, the scriptures are so transparent. These are not nice and easy stories to read. These are very vivid pictures of the deceitfulness of sin. And so let us be warned as the people of God. My heart for you today is that you will be able to learn from these lessons and guard yourself from the deceptiveness of sin and be warned. And, and secondly, I also want to challenge you to be proactive in the leadership of your home as you walk in faith with the Lord our God. And, and there was a part of me that a couple of weeks ago when we were away and Pastor Dustin was preaching. I was like, I was thinking, hey, maybe you'll take this passage, this wonderfully challenging, hard. I don't, I'm not excited to preach about uh, uh, a son that sleeps with his sister and rapes her and all the consequences that go on with it. That's what chapter 13 is. But I thought maybe Dustin will handle it. Well, he wanted to preach something else. So, um, you know, but and it was Father's Day. And the problem that exists in chapters 13 and following is David not being a good dad. And so maybe a couple weeks later, we can learn some lessons um, and be proactive um, and lead well with integrity. Uh, These chapters, really the end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13 and following could be summarized as family tragedies in David's house. The first tragedy was one of the consequences, and we didn't talk about this a few weeks ago, but one of the consequences of David's sin is that the son that was born to Bathsheba would die. That was God's judgment. I could spend a whole sermon just talking about that incident. Because there's a lot of questions that are raised in our minds when we think about judgment and what God does. And does that seem fair? Does it seem right? What happened? Why is this innocent child the one? All those questions that arise. But can I just tell you, if you go back and look at the text in chapter 12 of the events that surround the the child's death, that yes, there are consequences for David's sin. And yes, even in the death of David's son, David had hope for that son. He says that the child will not come to him, but he will go to the child. And it was when the child passed away, not while it was sick, that David found relief because he knew he had hope that that child was with the Lord. It was David's sure hope that he would be in the presence of the house of the Lord forever. That's how the 23rd Psalm concludes. He's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And he knew his son was there. But there, there's the consequence of a, a lost child. 
And then in chapter 13, there's the, the strange consequences of a family that is at each other. Because David had too many wives. And as a result of that, too many children. And he showed priorities to certain children. And he was hands off in other children. And now these babies that are born are growing up into young people. And they have divided loyalties. And so we read in chapter 13. Now, it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So two sons are mentioned, Amnon and Absalom. And a a sister, a daughter is mentioned, Tamar. Tamar is the sister of Absalom, but um, they're like half brother and sister. They share the same dad, different moms. Okay. We read Amnon number uh, in verse two was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he had made himself ill for she was a virgin and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. So what we need to see in this passage in Amnon and and what he is guilty of, um, which is very similar to his dad. Okay. Very similar, different responses uh, or different results, I guess. But verse two indicates that Amnon was so frustrated. He was in lust of her, of his sister. That's the best way I can say it. He thought about her a lot. She was on his mind all the time. He didn't know what to do about it. She was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. So can I just say that when the scripture says that Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, Jonadab really wasn't his friend. You're going to read what happens here. Um, If you have friends like this, can I just encourage you, please stop being their friend. Um, But the narrator includes for us this idea that he's a very shrewd man. He's working the angles. There's a purpose to what Jonadab is going to do. He's thinking a couple moves down the game board, right? He's playing chess, not checkers with people pitting brother against brother. And as a part of David's family and a part of David's court, he's trying to position himself. So he's a very shrewd man. What does he say? He comes to his friend and he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? He knew. Yeah, this friend knew what his friend was going through. But he goes with him right under the guise of, oh, I'm broken for you. You seem so, so despondent, so discouraged. How can I help you? 
He says, will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. And when he says, I am in love with Tamar, that's a lie. And we're going to find that out. He, Amnon's going to find it out very quickly. But this is what happens. Jonadab then says to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon laid down. He, he listened to the advice of his friend. He pretends to be ill, verse 6. His dad comes in to see him. Amnon said to, his, to the king, his dad, David, please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat them from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar saying, go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was lying down and she took dough, kneaded it, made the cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring me the food into the bedroom that I may eat it from your hand. So this is the plan, right? He's pretending to be sick. He calls for his sister to come and to care for him. She comes, she listens to her dad, prepares the food, gets it all ready, brings the food. What does Amnon do? He sends everyone out of his bedroom except for Tamar. So Tamar took the cakes, verse 10, which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. She understands what he is asking. Why would you do this thing? That there's that sense of it in her response. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Like, basically, she's saying, if this is going to happen, if this is your desire and intent, not right now, not this way. If you care for me the way that you are acting like that you're caring for me, then go talk to dad and he'll make arrangements so that it can be handled the right way in marriage, which is also strange knowing the dynamics of all of that. But Tamar's just right. A lot's on the line for her. As a woman, her purity is her um, devotion to God. And if she is impure and found to be impure, she would be unmarriable. She would not be able to have children. And she would be treated as if she was the living dead in her culture. And so she speaks the verse 14 says, however, he would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. If you have the New Living Translation, it says he raped her. And we're just, that's what it is. 
he forcibly had sex with his sister. And she did not consent. And he violated her. There's a lot we can say in our contemporary culture about that. But, you know, I I would just say um, to everyone in this room, treat everyone like I, I tell people this all the time. Whether they are not married, whether they are dating, or whether they are married, treat everyone as God's son and daughter and you'll be fine. Look at every person as God's son and God's daughter. And that, that can help in this fleshly, desirous, passionful you know, thing that, that we have in our fallen nature where we want to consume at all costs. But Amnon did not look at his sister as God's daughter. The event happens in verse 14. And the next thing in verse 15 is this. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. And you might say, but I thought the text said that Amnon loved her. No, he didn't love her. He loved the idea of being with her. He was a consumer. And there's a lot of that going on in our culture, sadly. We look at people not as people, but as instruments for our desires. And I'm not just talking about sexually, but very much sexually. I'm talking about we look at at people not as people created in the image of God, but we look at them as either obstacles in the way of what we want or as instruments to get what we want in life. And when we view people that way, we debase them to the lowest level. And there's a lot for us to learn. It's very clear that he didn't love his sister. He loved his lust for his sister. Maybe this is why Dustin didn't want to preach this passage. And he's not here to even defend himself. For the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which, with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go away. But she said to him, no, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than other than, that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Can you imagine being Tamar just in that window of time? Like... I was sent here by dad to care for my sick brother. Now I'm violated. And now he's throwing me out of his presence. I don't have any recourse now. She, she's not a virgin anymore. She is classified as impure because she's been violated. 
And he kicks her out and, and turns the door and turns his face from her. Now she had a long sleeve garment, verse 18, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeved garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away crying out aloud as she went. She's broken. She is in great mourning. For what took place. She understood it was a disgraceful act. Where does she go? Well, verse 20 says she goes to her brother. They, sh- they share the same mom. Right? She goes to her brother, Absalom. And he knows something's wrong. Right, just by her appearance, something is wrong. He puts two to two and two together, and he says, "Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart." So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. That that's how she spent her days as desolate, untouchable. But she stayed, not under David's. House, not under David's care, not under her father's watch, but under her brother Absalom's watch. And we're really getting introduced to Absalom for the first time in the narrative and what's motivating this person and what's going on in this this man's life. This is like there's a lot of intrigue, right? There's a lot of posturing. There's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of backhanded, shady kind of deals and plans that are made. Verse 21. Now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. And can I just say, that's not enough. I mean, where is dad in all of this? David may have taken no action against Amnon because he realized that people would regard him as a hypocrite. Why? What was David guilty of doing? Taking another man's wife and sleeping with her. Now, the difference here is that after David slept with Bathsheba and sent her off and and, and then Uriah came home and his plan was to get him to think that he's the father of the baby because she's pregnant. When that didn't work and Uriah was sent off to the front lines and died in battle, David at least brought Bathsheba to, under his care in his home. Amnon doesn't do that with his sister. He throws her out, shuts the door, turns his face from her. And his hatred for her wasn't the hatred of her. It was the hatred of, I think, the guilt of his actions. As soon as he consumed and filled his lust, he hated himself for what he did. And isn't that often where we find ourselves when 
we, I mean, we consume ourselves with with all sorts of thoughts about what we want, how we want it, you know, and whether it's a, a material thing, an emotional thing. I mean, all of the idols that can exist in the human heart, and we dwell on these things, and we think about these things, and 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 it grabs our attention, and then we 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 move mountains to get those things in our lives because we think if that thing is in our life, we'll feel really good, and then we bring that thing in in our life. And what do we understand? We're no better off than when we were before it. In fact, we feel worse for what we did along the way to get there, to get the thing that we knew that was never going to fulfill us. And that's where Amnon is. But David, he's not anywhere near of doing anything, not only as a king looking over the nation, but as a father protecting his children. Amnon deserved to die, as Leviticus 20, verse 17 indicates. The results of David's sin with Bathsheba became evident in in his relations with his sons. For how can a father discipline his children when he knows that he has done worse than they? And that's, that's the precarious spot that David finds himself in. He's like, how can I be the just one in this situation when I know I'm guilty of greater things. Not only did I sleep and commit adultery with Bathsheba, but I murdered her husband. Can I just say this loud and clear? As people that belong to family units of all sorts of shapes and sizes. Right, Whether you are grandparents, whether you are parents, whether you are newlyweds, whether you are people that have young children, middle, you know, like teenage children, adult children, all of those things. Can I just say this loud and clear? Passivity will kill your home. It will kill your home. If you take a hands-off approach and, and you say, no big deal, they'll figure it out. It'll kill your home. Now, I'm not saying be so heavy handed and and burdensome in the leadership of your home that you follow around the people in your house with a magnifying glass looking for everything that is wrong in their life and be hypercritical. But I will say this passivity will kill your home, thinking that you cannot discipline, correct, counsel, guide because of your own failings will leave your family to the wolves. You know, because isn't that where we all land sometimes, right? When we, we listen to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount and we say, man, I really don't want to be pulling out specks in people's eyes when I got hanging logs out of my own face, right? And, and, and we think, who am I to discipline them? Because if I'm honest, I'm, I, I'm just like them. I, I think the same thoughts. I've been guilty of the same things. I've done similar things. And, you know, it, the list can go on and on. And, and, you know, sometimes as parents, we look at our children and we either sometimes chuckle and say, oh, I remember when I did that stupid thing. And like we make no you know, big deal about it when it should be a very big deal. Or we, we take a hands-off approach and say, man, I remember when I was involved in that. And... Thankfully, the consequences weren't so big, so I'm just going to take a step back and hopefully it works itself out. Passivity will kill your home. David needed to be proactive and protect his family as soon as the incident occurred. He he didn't. 
But the passivity didn't begin with David. It began with the first man, Adam, in the garden. Um, when we all get to heaven, if Adam's up there, and I have no reason to believe that he wouldn't be, um, I, I don't know. But if he's up there, I think there's going to be a long list of people saying, Adam, what were you thinking? What were you doing? Because he's in the garden with his wife in this beautiful creation that God gave, and the serpent came to her, and the serpent brought the, the um, charge to her to disobey God's clear command. And what is Adam doing? Well, he's off in the side, and he's just like, like, in no way, Adam is protecting his wife, Eve. No way. He was passive. And the deception occurred. And then when they were confronted, what did Adam say? Well, God, the woman you gave me. And she did it. And here's Adam. Just like, oh, well. And can I just speak to the dads in here? If you owe well yourself through life, you are handing over your family to the evil one. Be proactive. Protect. Guard. Watch over. Guide. Shepherd. Love. Be tender-hearted. Rebuke in righteousness. And you might say, Pastor, that all sounds great, but I didn't have that example for me. I don't know what that looks like. Well, you know what? The great good thing is that God gives you everything that you need to be the parent that God wants you to be through the power of his Holy Spirit and the instruction of his word. Find people who love Jesus and will pray for you and follow their example. Ask them questions and be faithful. If you're in Christ, understand that you have fallen short of the glory of God, but also remember that God forgives your sin and remembers it no more. Lead from a position of freedom and along the way, acknowledge how God's grace has freed you from the power of sin. Like lead from a position of freedom that in Christ you're set free. And out of that position of freedom, understand as you're protecting and guiding and not being passive in the activities of the people under your care, that yes, you're free, but you're only free because of the grace of God. And draw closer to the presence of Christ from that position. We read in verses 23 through 39, Absalom's actions. Now, it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep herders in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. You know what's interesting, right, between verses 22 and 23? Is that two full years tick off the calendar. Two years. That's a long time. Like, not two days, not two weeks, not two months. Two Years, this brother stews over the actions of his other brother towards his sister. Absalom came to the king in verse 24. Behold, now your servant has sheep herders 
or sheep's hearers. Please let the kings and the servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, we should not all go for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged them, he would not go, but blessed him. So he goes to dad and says, hey, why don't we all go? I'm ready to, you know, to, to go with this. And I want to have a banquet. I want to have everyone together. David says, no, we can't all go. In verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And what's strange is, right, this isn't the only other brother that Absalom, half brother that Absalom would have had. But he clues in. He's like, yep, here's my time. Please let Amnon go with us two years later. And the king said, why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom commanded his servants saying, see now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have I not myself commanded you be courageous and be valiant. So here is the plan for two years that has been stewing. Everyone's going to get together. Everyone's going to be merry. Can I just say another word for Mary is everyone's going to be drunk. Okay, there's a lot of wine being passed around the table. And that will be the time that Absalom will strike in revenge for the actions of his brother towards his sister. It's strange what he says in verse 28 to the servants that he's going to ask to do the deed. He says... Do not fear, have I not myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. You know, when I read that, the first thing I thought was Joshua chapter 1. When God is speaking to Joshua about taking the promised land, he says, do not be afraid, have great courage, be valiant. And I was like, it just seems so eerily similar. But the person that is saying it and their motives indicate that Absalom wasn't trying to inspire his servants to good. He's just trying to quell their conscience and what they're going to do. And basically what he's saying to his servants is like, hey, I'm going to ask you to do this thing. Like, I'm not going to do it myself, but I'm going to ask you to do it. And just so that you can be at peace with it, if there's any problem with it, I'll take the brunt of it. He'll take responsibility. Verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Now it was while they were on their way that the report came to David saying Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Like chaos ensued in this merry party that's going on. One of the brothers dies. News breaks out. You know, it's kind of like playing the telephone game in school where you start at the first desk and you create a story and it goes around the room. And by the time you get to the end, all sorts of crazy things are happening. It's that kind of thing in the chaos. Everyone's running and fleeing. The news gets back to David. And the initial report is that Absalom killed all the sons. Then the king rose, verse 31, tore his clothes and lay on the ground, and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Jonadab. Oh, Jonadab. The same Jonadab in verse 3 that hatched this plan with his friend Amnon. Jonadab, we read, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, responded, Do not let my lord suppose they have put to death all the young men. 
the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead because of the intent of Absalom. This has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar for two years. You get the sense that Jonadab, in suggesting what he did to Amnon earlier on in the chapter, is for Jonadab to position himself somehow in Absalom's court for his own gain. He's pulling strings. And now he comes with this report. Verse 33, now therefore do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. And so there should be this, in in a sense, relief. Okay, not all the sons are dead, but oh, that son that did that thing. Okay, that one's dead. Okay, I can, David's probably thinking, I can handle that. I can deal with that. Because yes, he should have been dead as a result of his actions. I couldn't do it because I have my own things in my own life, but at least he's out of the picture and judged that way. Verse 34, now Absalom has had fled and the young man who was the watchman raised his eyes and looked and behold, and many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come according to your servant's word. So it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all of his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. Okay, we're going to stop here. I didn't even get through the second chapter that I wanted to, but here's what I need you to see. The initial consequences of David's actions in in chapter 11 are being realized in chapter 13 and following. The child that Bathsheba bore died. Second, Amnon raped Tamar. Third, Absalom broke off communication with his brother Amnon. Fourth, Absalom murdered Amnon. Fifth, Absalom left his native country and his family. Sixth, David has become even more passive as a father. And it's going to show itself in chapter 14 in dealing with Absalom and what's going on in this son that has run away from home because of his actions. And it's going to show itself in chapter 15 when Absalom has had enough and he says, it's my turn to be king. And he chases his dad out of the country. But what I'd like to just take a minute and finish on, and and Levi, can you do me a favor? Um, In the slides, just kind of skip ahead to uh, 1 John 1, 9, the Bible verse. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. As Christians, we love the truth of this verse, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that you fall short of the glory of God. You're not perfect. And oh, what comfort there is to know that we have a God who forgives when we confess. We need to hold on to that. 1 John 1.9 deals with how to handle sin after we have committed it. It's what we could refer to as corrective theology. The idea that when we break God's rules, break God's law, we have a loving and merciful, merciful Father that we can go to that restores us. Hold on to that. 
And I would say that as believers, we do really good at reminding ourselves of First John 1, 9, but we don't do as good of a job as memorizing other scriptures that should be an encouragement to us, like Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then we read in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So first John 1 9 is corrective theology. What happens when we sin? Great. Hold on to that. But also remember the deep truths of Romans chapter 6 that remind us, that challenge us of how to handle sin before we commit it. Like stop turning yourself over to your passions. You're not under the flesh anymore. You're under the power of God. Romans chapter 6 deals with preventative theology not corrective theology. Romans 6 is the warning of if you don't let yourself be under the lordship of Jesus Christ and let him control your heart, you're going to need a whole lot of 1 John 1, 9, which is always there and true in Jesus Christ. But you also need to remember as a child of God, God doesn't want you turned over to your flesh anymore. He wants you to be controlled by his spirit. And church, I pray that we can be a people that pay more attention to Romans 6. A passage that tells us to not keep presenting ourselves to whatever we think drives us and makes us feel good. My heart for you and God's heart for you is that you would find your greatest desire in life in him. And not in anything else. And if you can find your highest good in him. You'll have everything that you need. And that little idol factory inside of you that is sinful. Will be cut off from its power. And you'll be able to live more and more for the glory of God. Let's pray.